So good morning. Uh, my name is Johnny McDowell. I'm an ST3 doctor currently working in PICU in Belfast. Uh, today I'm going to talk through a case that my colleagues Dr. Malloy and Dr. Moore treated in our unit. I chose to submit this case because whether or not we expected this to be part of our workload as pediatricians, overdose and intoxication cases requires to be skeptical and to think broadly. So the patient was brought in by family and this was the triage note in ED. So in bathroom prior to arrival, fell, empty box of 3,500 cocodamol found in bathroom, unresponsive until arrival. So the first review from the doctor reveals no past medical history to suggest a reason for the unresponsive episode. The relevant history from the mother is that she was found unresponsive on the bedroom floor with two empty strips of cocodamol 15,500. Her brother thinks he saw her fall and hit her head. So already we notice uh, a difference between the initial triage and the history regarding the location, the strength of medication and possible injury received during the collapse. On assessment, ABCDE examination was stable with no external evidence of any injuries. However, GCS was 12 with E3, V4 and M5 and pupils are small but reactive. Initial blood tests are sent, and as you can see, there was no immediate cause for concern from these results. The patient was commenced on neuro observations, and the doctor planned to review it four hours post-ingestion to send repeat bloods, including a paracetamol level. However, on arrival for that review, the patient's GCS is noted to be four. They are currently maintaining their own airway and breathing spontaneously, but are now noted to have large pupils. The ED team commenced management of the situation. First, they gave a 400 microgram dose of naloxone to reverse any opioid toxicity from the cocodamol. Anesthetics were contacted for urgent review given the low GCS, and the patient was covered with IV ceftriaxone in case, the inf in case infection was the cause of the reduced GCS. The medical registrar was asked to review, and at this time, the patient had a nasopharyngeal airway in, and on examination, the med reg noted the following. So they had midriasis, hyperreflexia, and upgoing planters. The MedReg felt that this constellation of symptoms was in keeping with an anticholinergic toxidrome. So I want you to pause and think, if you were allowed one investigation in this scenario, what would you pick? So the MedReg requested an urgent ECG. The key findings include a rate of 110 beats per minute, a broad QRS of 217 milliseconds, a QTC of 0.65 seconds, and terminal R waves in AVR, as you can see here with the R wave greater than three millimeters. This ECG immediately flagged concerns with the MedReg of a life-threatening overdose of a different substance from Cocodamol. So a targeted history was revisited with mum, specifically asking if there were any other medications at home, in particular amitriptyline to which mum answered yes. So now we know what we are dealing with, a, a tricyclic antidepressant overdose, and given the child's current clinical picture and ECG, it is felt to be potentially life-threatening. So now we need to decide what we are going to do, and I would encourage you to take a few seconds to consider your first moves. The three key considerations that come to my mind are, how much time do I have? I would argue that this is time critical and you need to start treatment as soon as possible. Where is the best place for this patient? They're currently in an ED cubicle and so moving to resus in the first instance would be appropriate. 
and what, who do I need to help manage this patient? This ECG was done at 3.20 in the morning. Therefore, you need to give as much notice to on-call teams here at home that you're going to need their help. Just briefly to touch on tricyclic antidepressants, just a reminder that they act as noradrenaline and serotonin reuptake inhibitors and GABA-A receptor blockers. TCAs have their toxic effects through action at four main receptors involving antagonism and inhibition of central and peripheral AC or acetylcholine receptors, alpha adrenergic receptors peripherally, noradrenaline and serotonin reuptake, and fast sodium channels in the myocardial cells. So I'm now going to give an overview of the resuscitation that took place over the subsequent five hours. Management of this case was in keeping with the guidance available on Talkspace. So the initial management consists of a one to two millimole per kilo, 8.4% sodium bicarbonate bolus. Our patient is 55 kilos, therefore 50 mils was given. The ECG was repeated with mild improvement, so a further bolus of sodium bicarbonate was given. A repeat ECG shows improvement following the second bolus. Our rate is now 87 beats per minute, a QRS of 179 milliseconds, and a QTC of 0.478 seconds. There is also a noticeable improvement in the R wave height. A further sodium bicarbonate bolus was given, and recognizing the severity of the situation, PICU were contacted and asked to attend. A venous blood gas was taken, which you can see on the screen. With deterioration of the ECG findings, two further boluses of sodium bicarbonate and a subsequent infusion of 50 mils of 8.4% sodium bicarbonate over 30 minutes was commenced. The patient had a CT brain due to their low GCS to assess for intracranial pathology. This was grossly normal and the patient was then transferred to PICU. On arrival to PICU, an arterial line was successfully inserted. The team were quickly moving towards intubation and hemodynamics were stabilized as much as possible with a 10 mil per kilo fluid bolus and commencing of a peripheral adrenaline infusion. The patient was then successfully intubated following a modified RSI. Following this, the patient had a cardiac arrest with the rhythm on the monitor noted to be VT. CPR was commenced immediately and further bolus of sodium bicarbonate and recess dose adrenaline was given whilst pads were applied. Return of spontaneous circulation was achieved after 30 seconds. Patient's blood pressure was 88 over 34 and noted to still be in VT, but now had a pulse again. The post-arrest arterial blood gas can be seen on the screen. The team was targeting a pH of 7.5 to 7.55, a maximum sodium of 155, and a QRS on the ECG of less than 140 milliseconds. The patient remains in VT, and after a further bolus of sodium bicarbonate, they were given a 1.5 mil per kilo bolus of intralipid 20%. After obtaining central access and commencing sedation, the patient had a further deterioration. Their blood pressure is now 48 over 27, with broadening of their QRS complex again. They're given further boluses of plasmolite, push dose adrenaline, sodium bicarbonate, and intralipid. This resulted in 12 seconds of normal sinus rhythm before returning to VT with a pulse. Magnesium, calcium, and potassium were all optimized with infusions alongside two boluses of calcium gluconate. 
So bedside echo was performed, showing acceptable acceptable function despite VT with no effusions and a full IVC. On advice from cardiology, the patient received a bolus and subsequent infusion of 1% lidocaine. Hemodynamics continued to deteriorate. Blood pressure was now 64 over 39. And despite a total of four aliquots of push dose adrenaline and 20 mils per kilo of fluid bolus, the BP deteriorated to 36 over 29 and cardiac output was lost. CPR was commenced immediately. A further dose of sodium bicarbonate was given and rhythm was noted to be VT on the defibrillator with no pulse. Therefore, a 200 joules shock was delivered. Return of spontaneous circulation was achieved after one minute, and this was to normal sinus rhythm. Following this, there was a period of relative stability. The patient was discussed with toxicology and was considered for ECMO, uh, but with ongoing close management, continued to improve and did not require further escalation of their care. So what are the take-home messages? Uh, in my mind there, first of all, an ECG can be life-saving in overdose. The paracetamol level in this case was one, um, and therefore it was really the ECG that was the first flag that there was a different, um, different medication that had been taken here. Secondly, in the case of a TCA overdose, the advice is to titrate sodium bicarbonate doses to aim for a pH of 7.5 to 7.55 and aiming for a normalization of your QRS. Thirdly, intralipid and lidocaine can be used alongside sodium bicarbonate to help stabilize the proarrhythmic state. And finally, simulation training for overdose management is a fantastic resource to practice working through the management of different toxidromes. These cases do not come through our departments every day, but when they do, they can be incredibly sick and we need timely intervention. Why should we not practice these scenarios in a controlled environment so we can be ready for the real thing? Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Johnny. Um, interesting and, and challenging case. Um, and certainly something I know recently we've increased our age in children's hospital from 14 to 16. And we are noticing with that an association in, in terms of increased um, numbers of overdose, intoxication, etc. Um, so it's something that we still don't see as often as as, as adults, but certainly we're, we're seeing increase in, in numbers of, in presenting. There was a question in the chat about why not DC cardiovert on the YouTube chat. Um, so I th I think they um I've, going through the notes I, I know everything was happening sort of um quite quickly um I think initially there was the concern whenever they had the initial um cardiac arrest I know they didn't shock in the initial instance but I think they had return of spontaneous circulation before that but um in terms of um why they didn't shock whenever they were in VT at the time um I I'm I'm not sure. Um, and um, but I think it was that they were continuing to find improvements with the IV medications being given, um, and um, that was the the course of management that was followed at the time. Perfect. No, thanks very much, Johnny, um, for for presenting that. Um, good case and good learning. We'll maybe move on then to Fiona. Um, if you're happy to start sharing your screen, if you can. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Fiona Mendes, an emergency uh, adult and paediatric doctor. Thank you for the opportunity to present today. I encountered this case in August of this year at, whilst working at PICU at Evelina London's Children's Hospital. So during the summer holidays, a 15-year-old boy presented to the emergency department with his parents, feeling tired, generally unwell. 
He said that his arms and legs felt weak for the past two weeks and he was pain-free. Previously, uh, two weeks ago, he was in Spain for a family holiday and he was previously fit and well, no contacts and well, and he had no chorizal symptoms of fever. On examination, he was tired and sweaty. He was unable to mobilize independently and he had reduced power in all four limbs, but it was noted that this seemed to be due to reduced effort and his reflexes were intact. His initial blood test showed a, a low hemoglobin level, but that was within normal range and normal biochemistry. His ECG showed normal sinus rhythm and his chest X-ray had clear lung fields. In the emergency department, he became progressively more confused, lethargic uh, with generalized weakness, and then started developing intermittent agitation and features of an acute behavioral disturbance. Um, he was intubated and ventilated, and had a CT head, which was uh, came back as normal. Uh, he then went on to have a lumbar puncture and neurometabolic screening, including ammonia levels and toxicology screening, which all came back within the normal ranges. Um, he was admitted overnight uh, to Apiku and extubated the following day. And post-extubation, he fully recovered. He denied using recreational drugs, uh, any alcohol or herbal remedies or, or taking any medications, and this was confirmed by his uh, worried parents. He was then reviewed by different speci specialists, including from a neurometabolic disorder specialist and the neurologist, and he had further blood tests and genetic screening. But all of his clinical features were not in keeping with any specific condition, and it was here that we had to revisit his history. So on further questioning, he explained that he was using uh, NOS, or nitrous oxide, two to three times a day for the past two weeks in Spain. And he previously used this in the UK with his friends. Uh, he was buying whippets used for um, uh, whipping cream two to three times a week, where he'd inhale this nitrous oxide from a balloon, and it would give him a feeling of instant euphoria within minutes. Because it was short-lived, and also he explained that it was used medically uh, as analgesia, uh, he didn't consider it harmful, and he never considered this as a recreational drug. He also didn't disclose this with his parents. It was only when he was asked privately, and he dis he denied using any other recreational drugs or alcohol. Interestingly, when my PICU consultant then went to speak with him, he then said it was uh, he he was only blowing up party balloons for his uh, friends' uh, birthday parties. Um, but his parents later confirmed that whilst in Spain. He had made friends with other teenagers and that this was popular and widespread uh, at the near the holiday resort that they were staying. Um, so this was an important learning point for me, that to take a, a better drug and alcohol history involves asking specifically about nitrous oxide use. And for uh, as the clinicians, this was a light bulb moment because it uh, highlighted that there could be features of his vitamin B12 deficiency. He'd had uh, mouth ulcers in the past and he attributed this to being run down and staying out late with friends. Um, but this is associated with vitamin B deficiency, along with uh, macrocytic anemia. Um, high risk factors of, uh, of developing nitrous oxide uh, toxicity include vitamin B deficiency. Uh, so this is seen in strict vegans or those with intestinal resections. And he, he said, a patient said that he didn't eat many of these foods containing vitamin B12. He was also at increased risk because he was young and it's suspected that he's taken other recreational drugs. Um, other risk factors include being female, pregnant, respiratory illness, and having mental health conditions. So with, we diagnosed it with, uh, with, we thought that he had chronic exposure to nitrous oxide, uh, exacerbated by use of, uh, of an increased use of nitrous oxide, and he possibly used another recreational drug. 
um, the, the two main effects of chronic toxicity is uh, um, neurological, so sensory and motor de deficits, or hem hematological, so megablastic anemia. Um, and chronic toxicity is associated with, it's either a long-term use with high frequency or high amounts of nitrous oxide use over a shorter time. And one of the main uh, uh, important diagnoses not to miss is demyelination and subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord. Um, so following Toxbase tox advice, we started uh, folic acid, uh, five milligrams once daily. We advised him to stop his nitrous oxide use and he was followed up in clinic with the uh, vitamin B12 um, or hydroxycobalamin uh, on alternate days for two weeks. He also had uh, methylmalomonic acid or MMA, MMMA levels tested and uh, hemocysteine. And you'd expect them to be elevated in chronic nitrous oxide toxicity, although his was normal. His MRI scan was, uh, was normal, but the classical features of, an M of MRI findings in nitrous oxide toxicity is the subacute D combined degeneration of the cord. Um, so on the left, there's this hyper intense spinal, in the spinal dorsum column, this inverted uh, B sign. And on the sagittal image on, uh, on the right, shows a pattern of hyper intensity um, over the cervical cord uh, segments. So nitrous oxide is, is harmful. It's a sweet smelling gas. It's used medically as entinox, so 50% nitrous oxide and 50% oxygen. And as a part, it's used as a party drug or in festivals, where sometimes you see these uh, silver canisters littering pavements, um, where they inhale via through balloons, and it gives this short-lived euphoria, dizziness, and laughter. And over, because it's short-lived, it can you can develop a psychological addiction for daily use. Um, in 2016, it, it became illegal in the UK to possess uh, nitrous oxide with the intention to sell, but it was still available. It's still available online. And yesterday, on the 8th of November, it became illegal to possess it for uh, recreational drug use. The UK has uh, one of the highest rates of nitrous oxide use, with 8% of adolescents using it per year. The uh, male-to-female ratio is 3 to 2. And over the past two years, hospitals have seen increased uh, side effects of it. So we think that this is due to increases during the pandemic with greater online access and larger canisters available. Um, it can also present with the acute effects, so cold injuries to the tongue and hands and mouth, hypoxia leading to seizures, confusion and death, and pneumothorax. Um, Akem, in a short period of time, released uh, two safety alerts, um, and they highlight uh, that they, patients can present with vague symptoms, such as they can't feel their legs or their legs feel funny. And to ask, so it's important to ask about nitrous oxide use and consider the um, subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord. Um, they also mentions uh, not to use phenytoin for the seizure me management because of folate and vitamin B12 deficiencies. Um, and if there are acute neurological uh, features, consider starting uh, the vitamin B12 and folic acid early before waiting for results. Um, they released a, a best, best practice guideline in uh, April 23, and this uh, recommends EDs testing for uh, homocysteine and uh, methylmonic acid. Um, and following up this in the clinical setting. But because these results take days to get back, not to delay treatment. Uh, this guideline also has a patient safety alert. So it encourages patients that if they are going to continue using nitrous oxide to use balloons rather than uh, in a, in a, releasing the nitrous oxide into a closed space, because it's likely then that if they do lose consciousness, 
they're uh, instinctively going to stop inhaling from the balloon and then rebreathe air. Uh, so in conclusion, um, this patient had a good prognosis uh, and made a full recovery. They, there was early detection before he developed MRI changes, so we were able to start treating him, and he was supported with stopping uh, nitrous oxide. Um, the key learning points is uh, not to ignore symptoms of these vague neurological symptoms, ask specific, specifically about nitrous oxide use, um, and levels may be normal, but start treatment, starting treatment early means that we can prevent uh, potential life-limiting conditions. These are my references, and I'd also like to acknowledge the uh, patient and the parents who wanted to share this case to help clinicians consider this diagnosis. I welcome any comments or questions. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Fiona. Really interesting presentation, and I suppose uh, clearly very topical and something where I think there's a, there is a, a clear, a poor understanding around uh, amongst the public of, of potential complications and risks so it is really important to highlight those and also for us as clinicians to, to think about it and and to specific as you say specifically ask if we suspect um, uh, as, as we're seeing an increased use any any particular comments or questions from the panel members here today i don't see any um, coming through in the youtube chat thanks again very interesting thank you very much to both johnny and fiona for those, those really interesting presentations Chris has, has put up a Slido um, slide. Chris, do you want, I'll maybe hand over to you if you want to just to discuss the uh, sort of voting and um, sponsorship. What we're going to do, we want you to vote now on which of the abstracts you think was the best. Um, this one, for the prize for the winner here, we've got a, an AirTrack Wi-Fi camera and a range of AirTrack. So it's a really, really nice prize. Um, I had used this quite early in my training and to be able to practice at home. There's some demo AirTrack, so you can work away on the models. And if you do have any interest at all in doing anything related to intubation or pediatric intensive care, it's, it's a great prize to be able to have your own video laryngoscope. So we'll give you just a wee minute to get the, the voting in. Um, Johnny, there was a wee question just about the your patient, just the outcome on the chat. Uh, yeah, so they had a, a four-day stay in PICU um, and um, continued to need ongoing management um with sodium bicarbonate um as an infusion uh, which was uh, eventually able to be weaned but um essentially they, they had a a good recovery um the half-life of amitriptyline is 25 hours so they just needed really close monitoring um and ongoing sort of reversal of the effects um of of the tricyclic antidepressant but uh, they continued um continued to improve and then were discharged to the ward and then home so it was a fantastic outcome, and the team involved did an incredible job. And Johnny, why did they opt for lignocaine? I suppose amiodarone. Um, I believe, or amiodarone, um, is contraindicated because of its action in the cardiac cycle. I believe so. Um, the um, the uh, lignocaine was preferred by by cardiology, but I believe uh, amiodarone and I think procainamide are are both contraindicated in TCA overdose. Uh, but um, someone else can correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, that, no, that's correct. And if you look at the new APLS manual, they've actually got that as um, one of the new points, which I think is interesting. Okay, so and, I, I think we've probably had um, enough there in the voting. Um, so congratulations to Johnny with his pediatric overdose um, abstract. You're, you're the winner of the air track and the, the Wi-Fi camera. So hopefully that will be useful to you. Uh, and well done, Fiona. Your your abstract was really good as well. It was a close fight.